You're listening to Expanding Horizons, the podcast of the Unitarian Church of South Australia, a home of progressive spirituality and free religious thought and action since 1854. The views expressed in these podcasts are those of the speaker and are not intended to represent the position of the church itself or of the worldwide Unitarian Universalist movement. For more information, visit unitariansa.org.au. got me up doing a jig or a caper or something. Now we come to a regular part of our service where I light the candle on this chalice, a custom in the Unitarian Church at least since the 1940s. And since we're at the beginning of a new calendar year, perhaps we can take this as some inspiration to have the flame of love in our hearts radiant for this whole year ahead of us, not just for an hour a week, as we do with this flame, but every waking hour. And now a reading of a poem. Thank you, Erica, for reading the poem this morning. I take responsibility for the fact that I have translated, so you won't hear these and thous. I have translated into modern English, so I hope John Dunn will forgive me. If you are a purist, you can always buy an edition of the original poetry. Thank you, Erica. Death Be Not Proud by John Donne Death Be not proud Though some have called you mighty and dreadful For you are not so For those whom you think you do overthrow Die not, poor death, nor yet can you kill me from rest and sleep. But which your pictures be, much pleasure, then from you much more must flow. And soonest our best men with you do go, rest of their bones and soul's delivery. You are slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and do with poison, war, and sickness dwell. And poppy or charms can make us sleep as well and better than your stroke. Why swell you then? One short sleep past, We wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, you shall die. Perhaps we'll go now to regular time. Uh, Part of our service is to light a candle if we wish to share with the rest of the group a joy or a concern, something personal that we've experienced or thought about in the past week or so. 
So I'll light the, the first candle and something I want to celebrate is something I know that goes on around here which is the amount of caring for others within this community, the visiting and the phone calls to those who can't necessarily attend church, those who perhaps are confined to where they live and it's really a wonderful thing that there's so much caring. It's, it's not seen, it's not shouted out, but it's happening all the time and it's a wonderful thing. Would anyone else like to share? I just wanted to uh, light a little candle of joy for the Stream of Life program, which was the church's outreach program that started around 2010, 2011, and did lots of programs for the community in the church and helping groups outside the church. And uh, Jenny and I just went through and sort of rationalized all the old papers and kept the historic stuff and got rid of the unnecessary stuff. And the amount of work that went into it was huge, and a lot of the people who worked on it are still here. Um, so I just wanted to, you know who you are, um, give yourselves a pat on the back, and um, thank you for all that. Any others? Well, I'll just light a final candle representing those joys and concerns which we have in our hearts, but this is not the right time to share them. And please join with me in a moment of contemplation or prayer, if you will. There is so much to be grateful for, and our family, friends, and the caring amongst ourselves and in the community more broadly is a wonderful thing. Humanity is capable of sharing so much love and building up so much. And at the same time, we have concern for the injustices of the world, not just our own health problems and unhappiness, but as we are conscious of the brute force that's applied around the world, the unnecessary misery inflicted upon others. We pray for peace. We pray that the innocent may be protected and that justice may be done in every sphere of human existence. May it be so. May it be so. May it be so. Now I'll ask uh, Margaret to come forward and accompany us with a hymn, which I believe was prepared by a Unitarian minister based on a Buddhist prayer filled with loving kindness. So. Those song sheets or hymn sheets have been handed around. Hopefully you can find one near you and share if need be.
Thank you. And I'll ask Jean today to read out for us the seven Unitarian principles, probably something we don't do often enough. These are our seven principles. They're not doctrine or dogma, but more an approach to humanity and the world which we invite everyone to share. First principle, the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Second principle, justice, equity and compassion in human relations. Third principle, acceptance of one another and encouragement of spiritual growth in our congregation. Fourth principle, a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. Fifth principle, the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregation and in society at large. The sixth principle, the goal of world community with peace, liberty and justice for all. The seventh principle, respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. Thank you, Jean. Something for us to all bear in mind. And now I have some reflections to offer on John Donne. But first I wanted to start, to set the scene in a way, with a little story that was told by Brian Cox. I saw it on the ABC TV in the last week. There was a wonderful program with a symphony orchestra as Brian Cox, a scientist, gave us a lot of information about the universe or what's known about it up to this point. And he told the story of Albert Einstein when he was five years old. And he was sick in bed and his father gave him a compass to play with. And young Albert was fascinated by this compass because no matter which way he turned it, the needle would always point to magnetic north, whatever that was. And years, many years later, in one of his literary works, Einstein wrote in a work called Autobiographical Notes, this experience made a deep and lasting impression upon me. There had to be something deeply hidden behind things. And so I just wanted to say that I think this is what we are here to do, to become more conscious of the deeply hidden, that which is deeply hidden that brings us to wholeness, that brings us to wisdom and love. We search in the Holy Scripture and experience of the Christian faith and other faiths from philosophy and psychology and art and poetry. So it's in that context that I ask, what can we learn from the poetry of John Donne? Now, oh, there's, there's young Einstein. I've got a photograph of him. <clears throat> and and uh, I wanted to say something about the minister as well. Um, you know, not here to tell you what to do, just sometimes to offer advice, but... One of the peculiarities of this role is that one of the very few obligations upon the minister is that because the newsletter is published every two months, I have to come up with a series of topics in advance so that they can be published. But what this means is that I often haven't researched the topics that I'm suggesting to myself and the newsletter editors, and 
I must say, when I came up to John Dunn this week, I thought, why did I choose him? <laughs> However, I recalled from school days, because John Dunn was once a poet selected as a possible matriculation English topic, I remembered that he had a lot to say about life and death and relationships. So that's really why I chose him. And uh, I thought I'd get a beard, a little John Dunn beard, to match the presentation today. People, people thought I just missed a bit shaving, but no. So in the first half of his life, in particular, he wrote a lot of what could loosely be called love poems, some erotic, some romantic, and plenty which today which we would describe as sexist. But he was living 400 years ago, so let's make allowances we would like to think that we're more enlightened. So I really could see his poetry more or less in three categories. A lot of them were in that vein about love and relationships. And then in the middle part of his life, when he faced financial difficulties, many of his poems were essentially sucking up to potential patrons. For example, his famous poem, Can You Lend Me Two Pounds to the End of the Month? Just a joke. In the final third of his life, many of his poems expressed his traditional Trinitarian view of Christian religion as he contemplated the big issues of life and death. In one of his later poems, he says, there is no virtue but religion, whereas Unitarians might well say there is no virtue in religion itself. He, along with a number of contemporaries, was described as a metaphysical poet, a term coined by the English writer Samuel Johnson. And Dunn's poems are full of intellectual conceits, extended metaphors about abstract qualities, whether it be love or faith and so on. And I have a, a picture of him there with a wonderful shirt, which these days would be described as pretty trendy when he was young and thinking about love and all of that it may help to understand his poetry by understanding a bit about his life. So I'll just briefly go through a biography. John Donne lived at an interesting time. Shakespeare was a contemporary. He was born into Elizabethan England and he died in Jacobean England. In other words, during the reign of Charles I, who was later executed uh, during the time of Oliver Cromwell. Uh, Donne was born in 1572 in London. He was born significantly into a Roman Catholic family when the Anglicans were in the ascendant in England and Catholics were a persecuted minority. The tension and even hatred between Anglican and Roman Catholic was a, an opposition as intense as anything in the world today. Now when I grew up pretty well free of any religious influence, such a thing was inconceivable to me. And yet my parents tell me that when they were growing up, earlier in the last century, the Catholics and Protestants used to call each other names and intermarriage was socially frowned upon, if not outright forbidden. And this is not Elizabethan England, this is Adelaide 80 years ago. But in John Donne's time, it was literally a matter of life and death. It was on St. Bartholomew's Day, 24th of August, in the year of John Donne's birth, that a, a terrible massacre occurred in France. 
So literally many thousands of Protestants were slaughtered in Paris and elsewhere in Catholic France. And there was this great rivalry, not only between the religions, but between the nations, England and France. So Dunn studied at both Oxford and Cambridge universities, but he didn't graduate because to graduate from the universities, he would have had to declare his commitment to the 39 articles or points of dogma which defined the Anglican religion, and they have done since 1571. He was nonetheless permitted to train as a lawyer. Something very significant happened when he was 21. His younger brother was convicted of hiding a Catholic priest in his room. The priest was hung, drawn and quartered, by which I mean he was hung by the neck until almost dead, then his genitals, bowels and head were removed, and then his body was ripped apart in four pieces. Now one might think that John Donne's younger brother got off lightly by merely being imprisoned, but he died within a year from the plague in the squalid conditions. Don't you love traditional religion? But especially when it's in alliance with the political leaders of the day. Anyway, at age 22, with an ambition to make a career at the royal court, Dunn thought it might be a good time to become an Anglican. Now, as an aside, it was into this religious environment that emissaries brought the Unitarian message to England from Eastern Europe in the early 1600s. Scholars who had reviewed what they knew of the earliest biblical texts they could get hold of, who said, well, there's no evidence for the Trinity in the Bible, and that concept was brought into England literally just over 400 years ago, and it slowly spread secretly at first to become what it is today. In his... 20s, uh, Dunn took part in a two-year naval expedition against Spain, another enemy of England. He was rewarded with an appointment as private secretary to Sir Thomas Edgerton, a senior legal officer. So he's moving his way up the ladder to the royal court. He was given a seat in Parliament in the final period of Elizabeth I's reign, but that didn't last long. When he was 29, he secretly married Anne Moore, the 16-year-old niece of his boss's wife. Now, secret marriages then and even now in some parts of the world are usually resorted to when parental consent could not reasonably be expected. And sure enough, when the girl's father found out, not only was access to the family property and cash denied and his parliamentary career finished, but in a world where personal power trumped the rule of law, Dunn's father-in-law had Dunn imprisoned, and this led Dunn to write his shortest poem, John Dunn, Anne Dunn, Undone. <laughs> Dunn wasn't in prison for long, but the young couple, well, at least one of them was young, uh, now had no substantial means to support themselves, they had to sponge off friends and relatives. Unemployed poets were even worse off in those days than now. There was no social welfare payment, no Australia Council grants. He spent a lot of time writing obsequious poems to rich people who might be able to give him a job. It didn't help the household finances that 
Anne had 12 children by him, of whom six survived to adulthood. In 1615, Dunn's getting on by this time, the king, James I, apparently suggested that Dunn would not get a job outside of the Anglican church. Dunn felt a calling among his hunger pains, and he became an Anglican minister. Despite improvement in his material circumstances, sadly his wife died two years later at the age of 33. In 1621, he was appointed Dean of St Paul's Cathedral, a very significant post, and by all accounts he was well received in this role as a clever and creative preacher. And he died ten years later at the age of 59. So before turning to his actual poetry, I'll invite Margaret to play some more Elizabethan-style music for us. Beautifully played, Margaret. Thank you. Now to John Donne's poetry. As I said, his early works frequently considered love and passion in all its forms. And I remember as a schoolboy being pretty excited to read lines like, 
license my roving hands and let them go, before, behind, between, above, below. (laughs) In the 1590s, that was pretty racy stuff. (laughs) So perhaps something in a more metaphysical vein would serve as a better example of his early poetry. Uh, And you can hear in this poem how he has a conversation with an abstract quality. Love, if you are a god, then evermore you must be merciful and just. If you are just, or why then does your dart wound mine alone and not my mistress' heart? If merciful, then why am I to pain reserved, who have you truly served? When she that by your power sets not a fly, laughs you to scorn and lives at liberty, then if you are a god you would accounted be, heal me like her, or else wound her like me. So as I was saying, uh, in the lean and hungry years, Dunn spent a lot of time writing rather obsequious poetry to potential patrons. For example, he he wrote often to the wealthy and well-connected Countess of Bedford. To the Countess of Bedford, reason is our soul's left hand. Faith her right. By these we reach divinity. And that's you. And could you lend me two pounds to the end of the month? (laughs) Perhaps to our sensibility, Dunn's best poems transcend eroticism and Trinitarian theology. It's not often you use those two concepts in the one sentence, is it? The poem read earlier by Erica, Death Be Not Proud, is another great example of the tussle engaged in by Dunn with personified metaphysical concepts. So Dunn's having a go at death, accusing death of being pretty well useless. He's saying, you think you're so good going around putting everyone to sleep? Well, I can take a Valium and get asleep every night, you know, anytime I want. You're not even in control of your own work roster. You have to go around whenever national leaders or criminals uh, rope you in to knock people off. Of course, Dunn had the assurance of a heavenly life after his mortal existence. And I would say he was right that there's nothing to fear, but that's a topic I'll return to another time. Now, I should say uh, straight up uh, again uh, that I've been translating his poetry. So I'm going to read some poems, but I'm not using the old Elizabethan English. But I have given due respect to the rhythm and sense of the words. This one, which you will have heard of, I dedicate to the people of Gaza. No one is an island entire of itself. Everyone is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of your friends or of your own were. Anyone's death diminishes me because I am involved in humanity and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for you. In his final years, Dunn pondered much on the vanity of this life on earth, just as he also contemplated what comes after. And to give you the flavour of it, here's a brief extract from a long poem entitled On the Progress of the Soul. The world is but a carcass, 
You are fed by it, but as a worm, that carcass bred. Another poem from the last years of his life. Farewell, you gilded follies, pleasing troubles. Farewell, you honoured rags, you glorious bubbles. Fame's but a hollow echo. Gold, pure clay. Honour, the darling, but of one short day. Beauty, the eyes idle, but a damasked skin. State, but a golden prison to keep in and torture freeborn minds. Embroidered trains, merely but pageants, proudly swelling veins. And blood allied to greatness is a loan, inherited, not purchased, not our own. Fame, honour, beauty, state, train, blood and birth are but the fading blossoms of the earth. Welcome pure thoughts. Welcome you silent groves. These guests, these courts, my soul most dearly loves. Now the winged people of the sky shall sing my cheerful anthems to the gladsome spring. A prayer book now shall be my looking glass, wherein I will adore sweet virtue's face. Here dwell no hateful looks, no palace cares, no broken vows dwell here, nor pale-faced fears. Then here I'll sit and sigh my hot love's folly, and learn to affect a holy melancholy. And if contentment be a stranger, then I'll never look for it but in heaven again. As we prepare for some final music, I finish with another short poem about life. There's a reference in it to a tiring house, which is the old word for dressing room in a theatre. And by the way, many of these poems weren't given titles by Dunn, so often they're just called by their first lines. Or, What is our life? A play of passion. Our mirth, the music of division. Our mother's wombs, the tiring houses be, where we are dressed for life's short comedy. The earth... The stage. Heaven your spectator is, who still does note whoever acts amiss. Our graves that hide us from the all-seeing sun are but drawn curtains when the play is done. you've enjoyed this Expanding Horizons podcast. These podcasts are the intellectual property of the presenter. They can be used only with the express permission and appropriate acknowledgement of the presenter. This permission can be obtained by emailing admin at unitariansa.org.au. Please feel free to leave a comment or visit us on Facebook or Twitter by searching SA Unitarians or by visiting our website at unitariansa.org.au.
you.